0: Please note that there is a content warning for this episode. There are references to assault, including sexual assault. I would also like you to keep in mind that Ben is speaking from experience largely to who's in front of him, who are women that are actively looking to learn self-defense. Throughout the episode, Ben stresses the importance of trusting your gut and being aware of your surroundings. I invite you to listen to this episode with that perspective. That self-defense and the situations where it needs to be used are indeed ugly. In society, there is too much emphasis on telling the victim to be responsible for what happened. There are a lot of issues with rape culture, one of them being the lack of emphasis on educating people on consent with the message of not to rape. However, until we live in a world where more of this is implemented, people like Ben will exist to help others do everything in their power to firstly avoid such situations as much as possible and hopefully get out of them when they turn ugly. And self-defense can be just that, ugly. It should be used as the last resort of a potentially dangerous situation.
1: Being quiet doesn't help you. When you start to be loud, suddenly everything starts to fall in place. They will go for the eyes, they'll slap to the groin, they'll do the control, the manipulations and all of that. But if they're quiet, they freeze up more. If they start to yell and scream, they're not freezing up.
0: Welcome to Moynih. The first platform created to educate and inspire Muay Thai fighters and enthusiasts. We aim to pave a clearer path for those that need it the most. Equal pay, equal spotlight, equal opportunities. Muay Thai for everyone. Hello, and welcome to Muaying the podcast. Today's topic is self defense. Today, we have Ben Brown on the show. Ben has been a lifelong martial artist and taught self-defense all over the world for over 17 years. He owns Phase 3 Martial Arts in Santa Rosa, California in the United States. Thanks for coming on to chat, Ben. How has your week in Muay Thai been?
1: It's been beautiful. Yeah, I've got a fighter in camp. I believe you know who that is, uh, Robinson. Um, His camp went really well. He's in great shape. He's gearing up to become the unified California state title holder.
0: That's so exciting. Do you have any other fighters at the gym aside from Robinson?
1: yeah i have a handful but i try to stagger them i try not to keep them all in camp at one time so i take i mean you
0: time. you are only one person right <laughs> <That's> right yeah <laughs> how long have you had the gym
1: i've had that gym for 17 18 years it started as a karate school so oh. i owned it yeah about 18 years ago it was a karate studio and i was teaching self-defense in taipei mm-hmm. and I was teaching self-defense to, like, aristocratic, like, rich daughters over there. And while I was in that area, I decided, you know, I'm just going to drop by Thailand and see what they know. And um, just absolutely changed everything. So I came back to the United States. I looked for the best Muay Thai coach I could find. I believe I found him. Started training under the wooden man, Johnson on, And then made a very slow transition. And that's a tricky thing. Transitioning a karate school into a Muay Thai school without losing your student base and getting them all to come along. So, yeah, that's about how long I've had the gym.
0: Is there any reason why you didn't just want to split it into karate classes and Muay Thai classes? Was that more for yourself or?
1: It was for me. I had been doing karate since I was, my dad owned a martial arts school. My dad was my sensei growing up. I was literally raised in a martial arts school and it was a very traditional form of karate. And for, you know, the 20 plus years that I did that, something Something wasn't resonated. The tradition, the respect, the discipline, all of that made all the sense in the world to me. But something, I think karate in and of itself works well. I need it to be applied. I need it to be functional in a modern day scenario. So karate against karate works, but karate against a boxer or karate against a wrestler, you know, that started to bother me a little bit. I played around with some people in college and realized that I needed to kind of branch out. So I had been, I'd done a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a lot of Judo. And so I was looking for something that would actually resonate with me. And when it came to Muay Thai, I mean, that was it. So I have a deep love in my heart for karate, but I did need to move on. Of Muay Thai course. made and, me and for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, this is not any kind of discipline, black bashing. Uh Each martial arts has its oh, pros and cons. It's just, 100%. you just were looking for something else and Muay Thai was it.
1: Yes, correct. Muay Thai was it. Yeah.
0: Awesome. So, did you just teach self defense in Taipei or were you in other countries as well?
1: I did do some self defense in Mexico, but it was primarily Taiwan that I taught.
0: Okay. And you were teaching daughters of rich folks who, you know, clearly had the accessibility and the resources to do these self defense courses. Now, let's talk about like just self defense misconceptions. So someone else I wanted to have on a podcast with us was Emma Thomas. She's from the UK, but she's been living in Thailand for like 10 years. She owns a blog. She's a former professional fighter. And she's also a writer. And she wrote an article several years back retelling the story of how she survived attempted rape by a Muay Thai trainer. And this is when she was an active fighter. And then she went on to write more articles about how like, you know, we shouldn't call like martial arts that are in self-defense self-defense the self-defense is a whole other thing because you know in the streets or outside of a controlled gym setting there are no rules right anything goes whereas like in a martial arts there are a lot of rules about respect and then like you can hit this place you can't hit that place and i guess before i read this i just kind of always accepted the fact that like oh, yeah, you know how to punch and kick, I guess in a situation, theoretically, you should be able to defend yourself. So I never questioned the fact that like, martial arts was marketed as self defense. Mm -hmm. Until like, I read that article, and just kind of, you know, got the wheels turning a bit, I was like, Oh, you know, there are all these responses that someone couldn't have. Right. So that's definitely one misconception that I've kind of learned to, and I'm still learning to kind of unfold. What do you think some other misconceptions are about like martial arts being self-defense or just self-defense in general?
1: Yeah, I think there's this overlying assumption that martial arts is self-defense, and I believe it can be. But martial arts, be it, again, judo, boxing, karate, taekwondo, Aikido, whatever it is, those can be applied as self-defense given you've spent enough time in the discipline, right? So if you've been doing Muay Thai for 10 years, Muay Thai can function. As a form of self-defense, if you need to def- defend yourself or your loved ones. But this is a discipline that takes, you need to put in the time.
0: And I feel like the key word is also can, not will, right? Correct.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. For me, like, I absolutely, I have a love affair with the intricacies of Muay Thai, right? But if somebody really needed to defend themselves, all right? And I'm not talking street fights for ego. I'm talking like, you need to defend yourself for somebody you love, the curriculum changes drastically. So we're not talking spinning elbows and leg kicks. What we're talking about is you kick them in the balls and jab them in the eyes with your fingers as deep as you can, and you do your best to get away after having caused as much damage as you can in the least amount of time that you can. And the trick is predators, they select somebody that they think is going to be a viable victim. So what that means is somebody who's opting to assault you for whatever reason, they picked you out because they think they can beat you. They think they're stronger. They think they're better in whatever way. So nine out of 10 times, somebody who's you know a survivor of assault is assaulted by somebody who's bigger and stronger than they are. So there's no weight classes. They're not going to get on the scale with a one pound allowance. This is somebody who is bigger and stronger. By and large, that's the case. So self-defense needs to be something that can... Look, martial arts is beautiful. Self-defense is ugly, right? So self-defense needs to be something that could put somebody in the hospital with as little amount of time as possible. And that's an ugly endeavor. Like there's nothing pretty about that. And it's funny because every now and again in my gym, a dad will bring in his seven-year-old daughter, his 11-year-old daughter, whatever, and say, yeah, I really need little Janie to take martial arts. You know, I need her to learn self-defense. And that becomes kind of a long conversation because again, after, you know, 10 years of training, five years of training, yes, that can roll over into something that can be applicable on the street. However, if you've got a seven year old daughter that you need to learn self, no, I'm sorry. A seven year old girl, I've, I wanted to take a seven year old girl. No matter how much training she's done, I'm going to take her. Right. But so what I tell people like that is, look, at that age, you are her self defense. You need to be able to take, put her in situations. That's not going to be, you know, like dangerous. She, you need to control her environment so as to make sure she's not, she doesn't need protect herself because there's, I mean, the sad reality is, I mean, with size and strength being a factor, you know, young, young people against big, strong, older people, the self-defense, the math just doesn't work.
0: Right. And I feel like what you're saying there, it's also treading on very tricky territory, because I feel like a lot of people listening would be like, oh, but then that's blaming the victim in a way. Whereas what you're saying is also like, yeah, a seven-year-old who weighs what? 50 pounds, maybe not even that. It's like, how are they going to defend themselves against someone who weighs like two or three times their
1: amount? Agreed. Agreed. So, when I teach a self defense seminar, two thirds of it, two thirds of it is conceptual. All right. The last part and the least desirable part is when you have to get physical, you know, and the percentage, the success ratio of the physical side changes a lot if the first two thirds doesn't work. And so, With self-defense, the first thing you need to take into consideration is your awareness of your situation, situational awareness. Because if I've had a chance to talk with hundreds of survivors in almost every single scenario, there was a point where they realized that something was wrong before they were assaulted. Something was off. There was some kind of indicator where an alarm went off. So situational awareness is when you're in college, and it's 11 at night and you're tired from finals. Instead of going through that dark alley, you know, to get back to your apartment, maybe you're going to take a more lit area, right? And I'm not putting look. And you said like you're blaming the victim. I want to walk lightly here, but we do need to take accountability for the situations we put ourselves in. Otherwise you're going to put yourself in bad situations, right? So to be aware of the situation that you're in, if you're going to go to a party, and there's somebody there that just for some reason that you can't identify makes you uncomfortable, maybe you're not going to have, you know, an extra four or five beers. That's a situation you need to be in control of. Getting into an elevator when nobody else is there, and for whatever reason you can't identify it, that gentleman in the elevator that's looking at you and smiling just makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Take the next elevator. That's a situation that you can control before it has to get physical. So for the right. first thing to self-defense for me is situational awareness.
0: Mm-hmm. And I also know this, this is going to be very, very controversial. I'm probably going to get a lot of comments about it. We wouldn't need to look for self-defense if we had, I don't want to use the word control, but if we had more education towards less victim blaming and more, more towards telling people not to assault and not to rape, right? In the bigger picture of things, I think that if we had more resources in society to instead of just telling women don't get raped and more resources, more telling whoever attackers and sexual assaulters are, hey, hey, it's not right to do these things. Then self-defense wouldn't be a thing. But in your realm of self-defense, people are looking for it just in case they already are in that situation. And in that situation, it's all right. Well, we don't have the time to step back and be like, hey, you shouldn't be this. We have to get out of it.
1: Right. In my line of work, A, A, there's no blame. I place no judgment on one situation or another. There's always, you know, when I have a group of 20 or 30 women that are coming in for a self-defense course, there's always a handful of them that are survivors. You know, you can just tell when they walk in in their demeanor. And when I say there was always a scenario where you could have seen it coming, you can see their eyes just kind of, you can see a shift. And that's not blame or anything. That's just there is a reality about there's a situation. And if there was some forewarning there, like that as an educator in this, I want people to focus on that moment when you realize there was something off. And then that's where you can actually change the trajectory of the situation. To me, there's no judgment and there's no blame at all. What I do want to give people is an opportunity to control the situation so that in the future, God forbid, you know, they can head off a situation before it actually gets too ugly, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And you said it was uh two-thirds conceptual things in self-defense, and the last third is the physical. So, would the first third be situational awareness? And what's after that? What's after if they pass that phase? Like,
1: what's... Okay. So, we talk about situational awareness, being aware of your scenario, right? When I first started, t- I'm talking like, 17 years ago, I first started like actively teaching a women's self-defense class. And one of the things I did was, you know, everybody came in and I handed them all a clipboard and I had them write down their name, their address, you know, and all of that. And this is about to get really creepy. I have changed my methods. But what I did say after that one hour and they were there was a five week course, one hour every week. But I said after the first hour said, great. So you guys, you don't really know me. It's your first time meeting me. And now I have all your addresses. So sometime this week, I'm coming for you. And I said that to creep him out. I know how creepy that is. Trust me. Trust me. And not everybody came back. Of course, I didn't come for anybody. Of course, I didn't. But what I wanted to do is when they came back, I said, how did that change the way you walk through your day to day life? Knowing some weird bald guy might be around the corner. Are you aware of where you park your car, given where your front door is? Are you aware that there's this dark spot, like right next to your door where somebody could be hiding? Were you thinking about that? Were you thinking about when you go shopping, where do you park your car? You're being aware of the situation. And at first it looks like paranoia. That's what it looks and feels like. But over time you start to realize you just, you check your corners. You're aware of the situations where okay, there's somebody might be there. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I can't see something coming. So situational awareness, this is the first step. Secondly, is to listen to your gut. Like the human species has survived, I believe, because we have this fear response and it's not logical. But if you look at a bird or a deer in nature, at no point do they second guess their fear. If they get screwed, take off, they're gone. They're mm-hmm. gone. But we as a society, that's a little weird. Like, the guy standing in line behind me at Safeway is really creeping me out, but I'm just going to stay here because I don't want to be rude or look strange. We have
0: so, a conscious and we talk to ourselves. And Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and, or a gentleman at a party, you know, he keeps getting a little touchy, but I don't want to be too rude. You know, he's making me uncomfortable, but it would be awkward if I said something, but your gut fear is there for a reason. And it surpasses any intellectual like process that we have. It's there for a reason. So if you get uncomfortable, that's something you get to listen to and you should. That's there like for survival. So A, situational awareness. B, listen to your gut. If you're nervous, you don't have to justify it. Remove yourself from the situation or do something about it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So to begin with, again, situational awareness, and then you've got the listening to your gut. And the third part for me would be being able to use your voice. It would staggers my imagination when I've talked to survivors of assault and how many of them never actually said the word, no being Mm -hmm. verbalized. No. And that starts like when somebody's getting, making you uncomfortable. Excuse me, sir. I need you to step back. Excuse me. I'm uncomfortable. You need to get the F and start to escalate your voice in such a way to make it clear to him and everybody around you that you are not consenting to any of this.
0: Right. But then do you feel like when you say that you're like astounded that a lot of people don't say no, like what do you mean by you astounded? Like just in general of like how the situation played out or just in general of the amount of women that or just survivors in general that you think should have said no, but didn't.
1: And again, there's no judgment here. It just surprised me that that was the case. You know, one Mm -hmm. lady had gone to court and the lawyer of the defendant said, did you actually say no? And she hadn't. And the situation was so egregious and so horrifying in the, the worst day of her life where it never actually came up. But, you know, to me, and again, Angela, there's no judgment here, but it surprises me that in that situation, well, it doesn't surprise me anymore, but to be able to actually speak out and say, I do not condone this. You need to stop. No. And that's not just speaking to him, that's speaking to yourself. That's making it a pronouncement to the universe that you are going to stand up for what you believe, what you need to have happen. Like, this is not going to happen to me today. And strangely, tends to lock people up like that panic freeze response where they just they freeze. That's because well, part of what's contributing to that is holding your breath. So when I ask my self-defense students to speak out, say no. Every time you do your technique, say the word no. And say it loud. Say it louder. Every time you say no, I know they're not holding their breath. They're actually breathing. And that active, like saying no, you get them in the eyes, kick them in the groin. Every time you say that, bark it out. Say no, 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 no. And subsequently, I find that people freeze up less. They're not holding their breath. It's an action word that you're not approving of what's going on. Why do
0: you think it is that so many people just find it hard to use their voices during a stressful time such as assault?
1: Angela, it's scary shit. I mean, it is a horrifying situation. You know, like, even in the self-defense scenarios where we put them, like, we'll grab them from behind, maybe put their hand over their mouth. Everything is freezing, you know? Like, they absolutely lock up. Again, it's horrifying. But in that panic-freeze response, like, you start to... (gasps) You hold your breath, and when you're uncomfortable or something like that, that's a natural thing. You close your glottis, you hold your breath, and then your body and your mind start to shut down. I found that being able to use your voice in a loud way. I mean, you know, in Muay Thai, you're making noise, right? You don't train silently. Ish, 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 ish right? So those kinds of movement contribute to, A, your physical movement, but also your mental capacity as well. That's been my experience. In terms of why people don't, I think it's just natural. In in a horrifying situation, people shut down. Being able to use your voice tends to lubricate that situation.
0: Do you think that for most of them, even if they did use a voice, do you think an assaulter would even respect what they're saying? Like, no, I don't consent for you to do this. I mean, I would think that whatever an assaulter wants to do, they're going to be there to do it, you know, like regardless if someone says no or says stop.
1: I hear you. I hear you. And I agree. My answer to what you just asked is yes and no, because it depends on the situation. But if they're to do what they want to do, they may not listen to you saying, hey, please don't do this to me. But what I said before, when you're saying no, you're not just saying to them, you're making a pronouncement to yourself. It's self-empowerment. Right. Like, no, I do not want you to do this to me that you're talking to yourself as much as you're talking to anybody else. You're not going to lay down, first of all. Secondly, attackers need a couple things. They need you to be compliant. That's what they want. They need for it to be quiet. They don't need anybody to hear and they don't need anybody to see. Right. And if you're actually yelling out and so, A, the compliance, if you're not going to be compliant. okay, let me back up. There was a scenario where in Santa Rosa years ago, a lady was parked or stopped at a stoplight and a gentleman opened up her door, got in the passenger side. He had a knife and he said, drive. She didn't say anything. She just drove. And that day went really, really badly for her. And it was months later where the same gentleman got into the car of another lady at a stoplight, strangely. And she had her baby in the back. And I think that's what empowered her because she wasn't about to have this guy put her baby in trouble. And she started yelling get the F out of my car. No, no, get out, get out. She was flailing and yelling and screaming and he got out because that wasn't easy enough for him. She was not being compliant. So you're being able to make it as uncomfortable for him as possible, as loud as possible, to be as visible as possible and non-cooperative as possible. Then there are scenarios where the predators actually decide, this is not the one I need to go choose somebody who's a little bit easier. Um
0: out of curiosity, like all these things you're saying about, because a lot of these things where you're saying is kind of like hindsight. Oh, maybe she should have done this. Maybe she shouldn't that. Did you tell this to your students? Because I feel like for, especially of people who have survived assault, it could lead to a lot of like self-blaming or like doubting themselves or doubting their body. Whereas like a lot of people like who have survived assault, rather than doubting themselves, they kind of like want to move forward from that situation and know like instead of just thinking about, oh, I should have done this, Put themselves more in a headspace of like, okay, instead of thinking about what I should have done and being myself up about it, like what are some things I can change for the future rather than reflecting on the past, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
1: I understand what you're saying. With as much compassion as I can muster for anybody that survived an assault, and it, it's a horrible situation. When I teach these classes, I need to teach this from day one, from here forward. As I said before, there is absolutely no judgment, and you don't need to self-blame, in my eyes, for what's happened. But what we have to do is take what we have moving forward to become as powerful as we possibly can to be able to defend ourselves. And this information is useful. Be aware of your situation. Be able to listen to your gut. Use your voice. You need to be able to be loud and to be strong and to be powerful in every way you possibly can. Without those tools, I find that self-defense becomes empty. It becomes empty. Mm. There are people teaching self-defense where you stomp on their foot and you punch them in and you kick and to me, like without those three three concepts, like at the foundation, I find that a lot of self-defense in application on the worst day of some lady's life on the worst day of their life, it will fall apart.
0: When you laid out those foundations, have you had any students where they were just triggered and you never saw them again?
1: Hmm. funny, I don't think so. The way I teach self-defense classes now, I highly encourage people to take the class like every year or twice a year, and it's a four to five hour process. So we'll pick a day on a weekend. We spend four to five hours on self-defense. And it's really common that there's tears during the self-defense course, especially for the ones that have been triggered. And for me, when I see the tears start to well up in their eyes, like, I find that to be a good thing. I find that to be, okay, this is the material we're dealing with. And God knows, and I'm not a trained psychiatrist or anything like that, or a psychologist. But when I see these emotions bubbling up, that's your opportunity to take control of those situations, take control of those scenarios, and to overcome them. It's a chance to actually move on. Like This is where you are. This is the situation that you have. You've had that experience. And for you to be able to handle it, deal with it. And yes, it is emotional. And that's it's common in my self-defense classes that people cry. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the self-defense course, I, you know, like 99% of them are like, that was the most empowering thing I've ever done. And, you know, to go through the motions of the self-defense course without addressing the core emotional issues is tricky. It's important to me not to teach somebody something that will give them a false sense of security. There are things, physical and emotional things that you have to deal with that are incredibly ugly and uncomfortable. But I don't feel comfortable teaching a self-defense course that doesn't address these issues. So right. there are people that get uncomfortable during the class, but subsequent to the class, they're always raving reviews. They're glad they did, but of course it's not easy. To me, a self-defense course shouldn't be easy.
0: And part of like you teaching self-defense, how did you address the, you know, In school, we're always taught like fight or flight, but sometimes it's not fight or flight. We talked about freezing. So actually it's fight, flight, or freeze or a combination of those two. How did you address that? And how did you tell them like, hey, even though we're taking like this course, it's still not guaranteed that you're going to be able to do these things. You may very well freeze in a situation. And I know that obviously as a self-defense instructor, you're trying to get people out of that natural response as much as possible but how do you tell them in a way where they're just not scared for their lives
1: Yeah so I mean what you just said everybody says it's fight or flight but really fight or flight frequently it translates into freezing like you're 100% right So there's a scenario that we'll do in our self defense course well we'll have all these ladies line up okay and this is after hours and hours and hours of drilling and drilling the simplest things we possibly can that are easiest to retain that go off of just natural body movement. Cause when your brain shuts down, like you're not going to think, okay, is my left foot forward? You know, am I going to work an angle? No, it has to be simple. It has to be easy to remember. Right. And they've done it for hours and hours. And then we'll line up the ladies. They're all facing this direction and I'll have them close their eyes. And then one of my students is wearing like, you know, blower high gear, like a $400, like self-defense helmet he's wearing knee braces and geared up like two cups, right? And he slowly walks behind these ladies back and forth and they don't know which one he's going to grab. And that is a high anxiety scenario because everybody's sitting there with their eyes closed, shaking, jittering, and you can see their breathing start to get disrupted because at some point he's going to grab one of these ladies and she's going to have to do the work. That is a scary scenario. And that's, and I put them in that scenario, not because I enjoy it. I don't. Look, Self-defense is some of the most important work I do, and it's my least favorite because it's so emotionally difficult for them and for me, just watching it, right? But that situation gives them the opportunity to address, okay, this is what the freeze response feels like. And sometimes they'll have to do it again. They get grabbed, they this way depending, you know, they've been taught how to defend themselves with their arms pinned, with their arms free, with their hand over the mouth and all of that. And then if they freeze up, they get a chance to do it again. And I know this seems like an oversimplification, but the people that freeze up are the ones that aren't screaming. They're the quiet ones. They get scared and they shut down. And so for me, what I've found, and this comes after years of trial and error, the first thing I'll tell them is, okay, get back in line. You're doing great. Now, next thing I need you to do, the first thing when you feel this guy touch you, the minute he hits you, I just need you to scream the word no as loud as you can. And just that, Just the volume of their voice tends to get the ball rolling and disrupt the freeze response. It's strange, but it's true. Being quiet doesn't help you. When you start to be loud, suddenly everything starts to fall in place. They'll go for the eyes, they'll slap to the groin, they'll do the control, the manipulations and all of that. But if they're quiet, they freeze up more. If they start to yell and scream, they're not freezing up. By definition, they're not freezing up. So in my experience, that being loud, no, no, get the F off me. I said, no, no, no. And every time they say that word, their movement gets more empowered every time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you reconcile, like, even though you're trying to make that scenario as realistic as possible, how do you reconcile like that still being in like a controlled environment? Because, it, you know, a, a class is a controlled environment, even if it is self-defense even if people are still freezing like how do you reconcile that to your students to like take that out into the real world where it can happen to that any time not just that one hour in their lives
1: that week right I don't like when I say how do I reconcile it I struggle with it every single time I do a self-defense course like how can I make this simulation as real as I possibly can within the confines of safety and trying to keep my business open And without sending people away, having nightmares or whatever, right? It's difficult for me. I've made my self-defense courses as realistic as I possibly can without people sustaining injuries. But at the end of the day, and I'll say this from the beginning of my self-defense course, there are absolutely no guarantees. What I am giving you is a toolbox of things that are high percentage. They're likely to work if you use them properly. And also, I am introducing you, for many of you, for the first time in your life, the panic freeze response and i'm going to help you to navigate that so that you have the tools to be able to navigate the panic freeze when and if it happens to you in the future so it's not realistic because reality is realistic but it's as real as it can be and then for them to be able to have the self-confidence to being able to say okay that was hard but it's going to give me a better opportunity to be able to defend myself if i need to but at the end of the day, there are no guarantees. It's not real. I mean, sparring in the gym as opposed to, you may be the best sparring person in the gym, but when you get in the boxing ring, that's an entirely different situation. I mean, the adrenaline jump alone has killed most people's early careers, right? That's going to be the same thing on the streets if a woman has to defend herself. But what I find if they take this course two to three times a year, like their confidence and their ability goes up and they're more familiar with the material and how to handle the pan of but when you say how to I reconcile it i struggle with it every day but you know to make it more real i'd have to have somebody come and simulate rape which that's not something that's going to happen
0: what do you think about people who are not qualified to teach self defense but they market their martial arts gym as such and then when you bring up the fact that hey this is not actually self defense because any there's always like you know that x factor in the streets and well many x factors in the streets yeah and then their response is well it's better to not know anything at all like As someone who's a martial artist, a gym owner, and a former self-defense instructor that's taught internationally, like, what is your response to something like that? Because, like, in a way, it's like, okay, I guess in the grand scheme of things, like, it is better than not knowing anything, but at the same time, it's that false sense of security, right? So what would you say to someone like that, or what do you think about people who do that?
1: I've scoured the internet watching like self-defense videos and those kinds of things. People selling for hundreds of dollars their self-defense course. And I've even bought one. I bought a $300 self-defense course to see what this guy was actually teaching. And I don't want to sound like the guy I'm about to sound like. You know what I mean? Like I'm the best and they're terrible, but this material was absolutely useless and it causes more damage than it helps. And again, having a false sense of, it's not just about them taking their money and giving them fraudulent information. It's about having them go out there thinking that they've addressed a problem that is not being addressed. And they're giving them tools that I guarantee will not be able to work in the street. Like when the rubber hits the road and when that adrenaline dump hits, like none of this is going to be applicable at all. And it's not even addressing the most common, like physical situations that people are going to be put in. It is like a less evolved version of me who would be trolling these SOBs left and right. I hate it. It gives me Oh, I'm using the word hate. I hate people that are selling like subpar self-defense courses. And, you know, like every year I adapt mine every year. I'm trying to get mine better. You know, and in January, I'm doing a self-defense course with updated material. Right. But like there, are hmm, people that are selling this stuff and saying, oh, this is self-defense. It drives me nuts. It's criminal. In my opinion, it's absolutely criminal. Look, I mean, if you're selling cigarettes or clothes, if you're selling shoes or if you're selling booze, whatever it is, like, that's one thing. But self-defense is about somebody's freaking life. I have a problem. Like, I take this very seriously. I feel like if you're dealing with somebody's physical and emotional well-being, something that, A, they could die or they could be living with this trauma for the rest of their lives, I cannot stand people who take that lightly. I can't stand it.
0: And on a similar note, what do you think about you seeing all these videos of, like, girls or women just, like, fighting off people in, like, a bar or in a restaurant or a public place? And then it kind of just, like, romanticizes martial arts in a way as self-defense. Like, what do you think about those?
1: Yeah. God, sometimes I get dads in the gym, like, and they're all, like, yeah, self-defense. It's like, no, hey, street fighting is not self-defense, first of all. like. I pretty much stopped going to bars because for some reason, just the face that I have resting asshole face, you know, like people just want to pick a fight with me. You know, my response to those scenarios, I'm going to answer your question in a second, but like when somebody's saying, what's up, bro, come on. It's like, my answer is no, I'm sorry. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of you. I don't want to fight you. I'm afraid of you. Because they're going to be fighting for their pride, for their ego. And I'm going to be fighting for my life. That means one of us is going to fucking die today and I can't afford the lawyer. You know what I mean? Like, those are street fights. For me, like those fights, like that's an entirely separate issue than self-defense. When people are fighting in bars and that kind of thing, like there's always been a way out, right? Like you could say, now if somebody hurts your ego. You can go ahead and no judgment. You can choose whether or not you're going to fight for your ego or you're going to walk away. That's fine. But to me, that's not self-defense, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody's attacking you, great. That's self-defense. Fight back. But in a lot of those situations where, you know, I have a guilty pleasure of watching street fights on YouTube, you know, in most of those scenarios, there is an opportunity to walk away before it even got ugly. You know, yeah, yeah, my mom's a bitch. You're right. I'm sorry. You know, I'm a punk. Okay, you're right. My wife would agree with you. Thank you. I don't want any trouble. That's an easier solution. You know, but in terms of like the bar fights and that kind of thing, in my experience... More often than not, there is a way to get out of that. And I don't really condone street violence. I don't. You know, like that guy deserves to get his ass kicked. Yeah, he might. But that's, you know, that's not why I teach martial arts. I teach martial arts for people to strip their ego and to have personal and physical development in a way that, you know, like can make them and their lives better. And, you know, street fights and brawls and that kind of thing just don't contribute to that at all. That's not my agenda. So to me, that's not quite self-defense. Of course, it depends on the situation. Uh-huh. You know, I'm a big fan of Leslie Smith. You know, she's an MMA fighter. And I taught a self-defense class with her. And she told a story about a guy that came by and slapped her friend's butt. And just because he wanted to, you know, she confronted him and it turned into, you know, a fight. and She choked him out. And to me, like, that was justice. But that wasn't quite self-defense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Self-defense right. to me is when you're fighting for, you know, something more important. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Okay. So my friend, Emma, the one that I spoke about earlier that has the blog, her blog is under uh, undertheropes.com. And I'm going to say like a couple of lines from the article she wrote. It's titled Why Self-Defense Classes Don't Prevent Sexual Assault, which is something that I think we could all agree with. Like, you can't prevent external factors, even though you've taken the course, right? So I just want to read it out loud. And I want to get your response to it. Even those who have some form of training may find themselves powerless to use any of the skills they've learned in a real-life situation. I was one of them. I've spoken publicly multiple times about the freeze response to trauma and how this was my personal experience. When a Muay Thai instructor attempted to rape me, I was unable to speak or move, let alone scream, kick, or perform a well-timed maneuver to escape. I knew how to fight, but I couldn't. So even if I had practiced Specific self-defense techniques like the one shown in this video and she like links a the video. They would have been useless to me. This response is common even for those who possess the skills and strength you would as- assume one might need to fight back. And the reason why I'm quoting this is because a lot of survivors of sexual assaults. One, most of the time they're assaulted by someone they know, not a complete stranger out in the streets. True. True. And two, she and also other survivors got a lot of flack of like, oh, well, you're a fighter. Why didn't you just do this? Why didn't you just do that? So I wanted to get your take on what she wrote.
1: Yeah. So I think she's right. Yeah. But she is talking in absolutes and she gets to, she absolutely gets to. I think she's absolutely right. To me, the least desirable part of self-defense is when like the physical side of it. And again, so as I said before, most of self-defense is conceptual, Right. So when you get put in that situation where, you know, with the situation that she's in, I think it's natural that, you know, that somebody would freeze up. My God, it's a horrifying, horrifying nightmare. Right. I also want to say that if there was a self-defense course that she had taken that addressed the panic freeze response, like when you feel like this, I do this under the most like horrific situation somebody could imagine like to be able to navigate that, there is a better chance. And I, this is not a flat out solution. There is a better chance that you can navigate that situation when things get really, really ugly. People are always talking self-defense is this and self-defense is this and self-defense is this. And to me, that's not the case. Like, yes, those tools are there if, God forbid, it gets there. But being able to, A, control the scenario as much as you can. B, listen to your gut and if you're uncomfortable, leave the situation. c Start using your voice and to be able to talk this person down as loudly and violently as you possibly can, those things tend to fend off the scenario that have a better chance of fending off the scenario where it actually gets physical. And again, there's never any guarantees. I think she's right and I feel for her. Just that situation angers me so much, especially considering it was a coach and he was in a position of power that triggers me. That makes me really, really angry. And at the same time, I do believe that there are self-defense courses that address the problems that came up for her in that scenario. I do. Uh I think a lot of self-defense courses out there are trash and useless because they're not really talking about the core issues, right? Uh You know, how to navigate fear. Like that's huge. How to navigate fear and to be able to do a mulligan, like, okay, that didn't work out. Let's try it again. And to get them scared again, like that's not an easy thing to do. Right. But self-defense courses that can do that, they can address those core issues, you know, they have a better chance. And it's all about preparation. There are no guarantees. It's just you want to improve your chances.
0: Mm. Can you tell us some ways where the physical parts of self-defense, can you tell us some ways where that would be different from training, sparring, or even fighting Muay Thai? Like, because, you know, I see a lot of these, like, that are the trash videos that you're talking about, about oh, you do this and then this and then you spin and then you do this. And then, you know, there are some videos now that are making fun of it where it's like as soon as the person moves, they wake up in heaven, which. <laughs>
1: right. yeah, I've seen that. I totally agree. So defense, hand-to-hand defense, and then there's defense against knives and guns, which is an entirely different monster. And I treat those incredibly different. Like knives scare the hell out of me. And I practice knife defense all the time. And I also believe that if I have to use knife defense, like I'm going to the hospital. Knives are scary. At close range guns, well, a different story. Hand to hand self defense. For me, you know, if I'm thinking, you know, jab, cross, uppercut, leg kick, like that makes sense in a controlled scenario with a referee and there's ropes and there's a timer, right? And also people like you and me, we've drilled this a lot. It's already in there. It's innate. It's a part of who we are throwing those techniques. So we have a lot of arsenal. But when somebody comes in and they want to take a self defense course and they've never trained before, I don't teach them to punch. If you want to do a punch with those first two knuckles and get the wrist aligned and be able to push off that back leg and turn the hip and shoulder, get the, no, no, you're going to hurt your hand and you're not even going to hurt him, right? So, you know, people can break their hand punching, but I've never seen somebody break the palm of their hand. So, boom, very simple, heel palm. Find a surprise shot, heel palm to the face or to the nose, that works. Open hand there to the throat, Off a surprise shot, boom, that works. Five fingers going towards the eyes. Yes, you're likely to jam or break one of your fingers, but all five fingers going towards the eyes, one of those suckers is going to get in, and the highest concentration of nerves in the human body is the ocular lens, you know, and work to the groin. Uh, Not a snap kick, not a front kick, not a spinning kick, just a punt to the groin or a knee to the groin. When he's got his hands on you, grab him tight and start throwing knees to the groin. Spectacles and testicles are the best best targets for self defense, and it needs to be minimal. It needs. I don't need this to be complicated. I need it to be as simple as it can possibly be. Jab them in the eyes, kick them in the groin. You know, like in heel palm to the face. Rinse and repeat, and do it as violently, as loud, and, and as hard as you possibly can. That's. And just- do you
0: think like uh, targeting the eyes and targeting the groin area? Do you think that works well for both male and female attackers?
1: Targeting to the groin doesn't work as well with female attackers. Uh So like for males, you've seen it. Some of the toughest guys on the planet wearing a galvanized steel Muay Thai cup and they get clipped in the groin. They stop the fight and let them walk it off and all that. Right. So it's, it's incredibly effective for people like me. I found that you don't get the same effect with ladies, but kicking to the groin, it hurts. But it's a surprisingly easy target to hit. Anybody that's attacking you has got a wide base. They're not standing with their feet together. You know, it's right there. Boom, eye gouge, heel palm, dominant leg punt to the groin. And that's an easy target. But for the ladies, like the groin shot is not as effective, but I would keep it for simplicity's sake because, you know, level changing works. Hitting to the head so that you can hit to the body or hitting to the body so you can hit to the head. That's a functional way to mix things up. So hitting to the head so you can go to the groin or hitting to the groin so that you can follow up on the head tends to work. It's simple. It's useful, just not as effective with women attackers. Mm-hmm. In violent assault, though, I do, as self-defense coach, I do play the odds. And the odds are, overwhelmingly, you're being attacked by a man. Overwhelmingly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. What other differences are there between what the physical stuff you teach in self-defense and what we know as
1: martial arts and Muay Thai? So, first of all, like, one of the things we'll do is, like, okay, is, like, A fighter would present like this, okay? Bump hands, hands up, chin down, get a good rhythm. For a self-defense person, the first thing you want to do, the first thing, like when you start talking them down, when they start getting too close or whatever, and that's, by the way, when you have the luxury of seeing the attack coming, right? That Mm -hmm. We do address that. Like you see this attack coming, then you assume the position. If you don't see the attack coming, that's one of the most difficult to navigate in terms of the panic freeze. But Just the way you present yourself. First of all, yes, you do put your lead foot forward, dominant foot back a little bit, and then hands up like this. Elbows down, hands up. Hey, hey, you need to get back. I'm uncomfortable. Stop. You need mm-hmm. to get back. Now, this shows that it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I can defend my head from here. Mm-hmm. I can defend my arms. I'm also set right off to be able to throw attacks from this position, from a surprise shot. If you're screaming as loud as you can, get the fuck back. Get back. Get back. I told you to get back and he continues moving forward. It doesn't matter what language he speaks. You know everything you need to know. Mm -hmm. You're Mm going to have to do the work. And if he continues to move forward, that's when you throw your surprise shots if you get the opportunity. Elbows down, hands up, and using your loud voice, but assuming a a slightly weaker position. If, in my experience, in a self-defense scenario, if you show them this, they'll show you that too. Does that make sense? Just your position makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then physically, like, Again, I want a very small toolbox in self-defense. I mean, there are are some people who teach self-defense and they give you a long list of shit. It can't be. So I'll always tell them, okay, spectacles and testicles, keep that in mind, all right, and rinse and repeat until you can't anymore. So what's going to happen is you shoot for the eyes, you go for the groin, you heal palm to the face or the throat, and then you cycle that again and again. You can mix it up, but I just find it's very simple. One, two, kick, you know, like pretty simple. But then at some point, A, you got him in the eye, he bent over, and you need him in the face, or you got him in the groin, to bent over, you give him an opportunity to leave or try to finish, all right? Or B, he's got his hands on you. And when he's got his hands on you, A, like, he's got his hands around your waist, B, your hands are trapped, or C, a variety thereof, right? And there's also a scenario where he can grab you from behind. In those scenarios, being able to find the most vulnerable spots to actually get him to let go. So if your arms are pinched, in most scenarios, Your hands can actually lower down and actually we're talking ripping at the genitals with both hands, ripping and jumping and ripping and jumping until it loosens up. If your arms are free and your hands are out, being able to reach around, grab the skull and put your thumbs through the eyes. It's simple. It's, I'm sorry, it's gruesome, Angela, but it like, you know, I do tell them when you go for the eyes, you're squishing the grape. You need to go all the way through, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the last part, and one of the most difficult parts to teach, is if she's on the ground. So, A, she could have been knocked down, and that's when she'll assume a position on her, like, on her elbow, on her side, knee up, in a position to be able to stomp, kick up. And that's also, a really, it's an easy way to start rotating. If he's moving around, you can follow and You keep the heel, your gun, pointed at him constantly. Or if he's on top of you, in the guard position, which is the classic rate position, or the full mount, being able to navigate those. Like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a fantastic martial art. My God. But it's so technical that it takes years of training for it to be functional. Whereas if in jiu-jitsu, if somebody's got me in the mount, even if they're going to start to ground and pound me, I'm going to try to buck and go for the groin as much as I can, you know, like go for the eyes, every opportunity I get. And to be able to train that with as few moving parts as possible so it's easiest to remember, that tends to work best for us. Mm-hmm.
0: I remember when I started training Muay Thai, a couple of people said some things to me that kind of stuck with me. But now that we're having this conversation, and I've been reflecting a lot on this in the past couple of years, like I'm starting to like, see the validity in some of what they're saying, but also questioning it. So the first thing I was told was like, Oh, but you know, if you're like in a bar, and someone tries to pick a fight on you, and then you show them that you can punch and kick, then. There goals, their punches and kicks, they're going to start grabbing chairs, beer bottles, you know, what have you, just so they can take you down. And yeah, that's right. But at the same time, it's like, would I really be, you know, like, it's like, if you're giving the option to just walk away or not, or if you view it's in your power to not escalate it, like why escalate it, right? And the second thing I was told was like, oh, why don't you learn jujitsu? Because like, God forbid you needed to, you were in a bad situation, you're probably going to be on the floor. No one's going to try to get you like, punching and kicking like on your feet especially if they know that you can and yes again there's validity to what they're saying but at the same time it's like okay but that's going through like the assumption that i will be doing these things not that i have the tools and there's a possibility that i might not
1: yeah i hear you so like the first statement like in the bar where like you're One of the things I teach in the self-defense course is your environment is your weapons. Your environment is filled with weapons, like your self-defense tools all over. That lamp, that chair, like that set of keys, like these are all like force amplifiers, right? Like in that bar scenario, like, yeah, if you show them this, like they're going to go, I totally agree with that. But when it comes to the jujitsu, I mean, that's a tricky thing. I mean, jujitsu works really, really well if you've trained it properly. I find that jiu-jitsu doesn't work well with somebody who's not a disciplined, like consistent student. But also jiu-jitsu works really well as long as it's one-on-one. Mm-hmm. All right. If you take somebody down or taken down and this guy has one other friend, um, you're going to get skull stomped. You know, you're literally tied up in jujitsu. So it's a self-defense tool. against a one-on-one scenario. I think jiu is fantastic. It's if you train it consistently for a long time, I think it's fantastic. But I found that and also, you know, are you in the gravel or you're on the streets or broken glass on your barroom floor where there's no room to navigate? Like all those things change the scenario. In my experience, it's best not to go to the ground in self-defense situations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just if you can run away, you win. <laughs>
1: Techn- you know right. What I mean? 100%. Techno. Yeah. If
0: you have your life. You and win. I see
1: this all the time. This is not about the good guy wins and the bad guy goes to jail that is not what this is at all this is not like some satisfying movie ending it's not it's you leaving the situation with your body and emotions as intact as possible yeah
0: now with you know the internet has made a lot of things accessible but unfortunately it's also brought up all these like fake people just claiming to be experts at something that they're clearly not self-defense being one of them, like that being said, do you recommend someone who's looking for like an actual self-defense course to be doing it online or doing it
1: in person? Okay. So I don't want to be too judgmental of systems and online courses that I haven't vetted. Right. I, that Mm -hmm. I, like, I may not know the entirety of it, but I don't see a way of doing an online course that will properly address the panic freeze response. That's Mm -hmm. an up close and personal thing. Uh Like if somebody wants to learn self-defense techniques, okay. All right. It's Uh it's possible. Like, and I can teach a Muay Thai Zoom class, you know, we've done that, but we know it's not optimal. Uh Uh We know it's not optimal, right? I can teach you how to move on Zoom, but we know it's not optimal. Being up in person, like be able to get your hands on them and say, no, your body needs to move like this. This is what it feels like to actually hit something with this technique with an impact as loud and hard as you possibly can. That's what it feels like next. This is what it feels like to be scared and to be able to work through that fear. I don't see a way to do that on an online course. I just don't. So I'm not, I don't know that an online course hurts as long as it's supplemented with something that's more functional in terms of, you know, navigating your emotional trauma. Got
0: it. And if someone were to look for a self-defense course, what would be some Things they should look out for to determine if it's a right fit or not.
1: That's a hard thing because, yeah, god dang, that's that's a tricky question, Angela. Because most people looking for a self defense course, like if you go car shopping, you know most people don't look under the hood because they don't know what they're looking at under the hood. You know, you understand what I'm saying? They don't know where you know. Like you, so a lot of them will not be able to recognize what quality is if and when they see it frequently, right? So what I would say is look for, it's a good question. First of all, ask questions Mm -hmm. all right, beforehand to ask them if they do, like how it is they actually help them navigate through the panic freeze response, which I think is the biggest issue in self-defense period, right? And also look for reviews or testimonies or look for, you know, like the words of other people who have taken that course. That's the best way to do it. Because like to the layman, you know, anything could be self-defense you know, like, right. you know, just like either you and I both know there's so much trash out there, but most people wouldn't know the difference. So I would get testimonials, get reviews and ask them specifically about how they help navigate the panic freeze response.
0: So when you, as someone who's taught self-defense, when you see certain courses and videos and all those things, how do you determine if it's trash or if there's something to it?
1: Okay. I'll look at somebody doing a technique. And I just run it through my head, you know, in application, you know, like, and it would be the same thing if I was looking at like at a Muay Thai video, somebody's teaching like a Muay Thai video or self-defense video, same thing is like, they'll demonstrate this thing. And then in my mind, I will actually look at in application, how does this work? And I start putting on filters like, okay, in application, would this work if he's bigger and stronger? Okay. And then the next filter would be, would this application work if there's multiple attackers? Would this application work given that it's a surprise attack and the panic freeze response is imminent? You know, I start putting these filters on it and start wheedling out. It's like I happen to know that this is way too complicated. This is not powerful enough. Given those filters, it starts to boil down to, in my experience, less is better in self-defense. And when I start seeing things get really fancy or like, multiple targets or like, you know, it requires too much thought, mm-hmm. you know, that then those things just fly by the wayside for me.
0: What do you think about certain accreditation? Like when people say like, oh, I'm a self-defense instructor. I used to be in the military or I have this certification and things like that. Which ones do you think are all oh, that's garbage and which ones are you like, oh, okay, I'm interested in learning more?
1: That's hard to tell. That's, hard to, that's why online charlatans are, are such a problem because Look, you were in the military. That could be one of your credentials. I mean, that's great. Being in the military doesn't necessarily mean you're being a Navy SEAL, doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good self defense coach. I would argue that it's likely that you are a good self defense course if you're a Navy SEAL. Like you've got a lot of great skills, right? But it's hard to tell because I could look, Angela, I could tell you anything right now. You know, I could tell you I'm an absolute master at self defense. I know what I'm talking about and I get results, and you have no way of actually. Verifying that unless you come and take my course. So it's kind of a double edged sword right there. It's hard to tell, you know? Um, and also, as you know, just because you're a good fighter doesn't make you a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like being able to throw punches doesn't mean that you're all that great at actually helping somebody come up and to be able to do what you are able to do. So Mm -hmm. it's really tricky. I haven't found a full proof way of vetting a good self defense course because it's too easy to fake. And most people are uninformed because they're, you know, they're not day-to-day martial artists. So it's hard for them to tell. Um, mm -hmm.
0: Sorry. It's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. Mm. Is there any sort of, like, organizing body or... Because I'm just thinking of, like, in Muay Thai, there are sanctioning bodies, some more respected than others. And is there anything like that for martial arts where they have affiliated schools? Or at least there's some sort of, like standard of trust level or is there nothing like that for the self-defense for self-defense
1: no there's nothing like that for self-defense there are well-established self-defense companies but you'll find that you know the blower system or the spears system or like there's there's different systems that you know that people will use but they are so proprietary that i don't see all these coaches getting along you know like my way is better than yours we got to do it my way right I'd be surprised if that was possible, though I think it would be a dream if it were. Yeah. Having like a sanctioning bodies for self-defense courses, but nobody's taking that mantle.
0: Mm. I guess where I'm trying to go with this is like how you would vet if something is like legitimate or not is purely through your experience, like your decades worth of experience as a martial artist and as someone who taught self-defense. Like, what if an everyday person like me, I know nothing about self defense. I'm a Muay Thai fighter. I'm a professional Muay Thai fighter. I've had almost 50 fights, but I still know nothing about self defense. Like if I were to like, look for places aside from reading reviews, is there like, are there resources online? Like, is there like a list of places that people can go and know that they're even if it's not the best of the best, at least it's not complete bullshit. Like, is there anything like that for people who just really don't know anything?
1: Sadly, I've never seen anything like that. I haven't. And to be able to verify that, it would be like herding cats. Like, you know, there are so many people out there. Just the other day, I drove by a Taekwondo school, and the big blaring red letters outside is self-defense. It's like, would this organizing body have to be able to verify every single martial arts school that is claiming to be able to teach self-defense? I mean that would be a massive undertaking i haven't seen anything like that i would like to see it happen but my life's too busy to start something like that of myself but no there's not a rotten tomatoes for self-defense course that i've seen
0: right do you have any like recommendations that you would give to people you know in terms of like places or coaches that teach self-defense
1: you know what this could be nationwide or this could be an international podcast so what i would say is I haven't vetted, you know, self-defense courses in Seattle or Tijuana or, you know, or wherever, you know, like I haven't. But what I do like is the martial art Krav Maga. Krav mm-hmm. Maga is pretty, it's around the world. And Krav Maga is a martial art, but it's more martial than art. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like Krav Maga at its base, at its root system, it's it's the fight system for the Israeli army. And that's, it's been adapted for specifically self-defense services purposes. So Krav Maga is a self defense based martial art. So unless you can like vet and get like the recommendations and reviews on a good self defense course and if you're not in a position to ask them questions in a pinch, I think a good martial arts academy or a good Krav Maga Academy would be a good way to go.
0: It would be a good start, at least while you're trying to figure out other stuff, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. And zooming back out to the bigger picture because self defense is just a very, very like It's a very important, but also in the bigger picture of things is a very small part of the problem. So when we talk about assault, there's different kinds of assault, but in the lens of sexual assault, right? What can some things we do as a society, as people to make self-defense less important than it is now? Because I would say it's pretty important, even though a lot of people don't have access to it. But what can we do as a whole where maybe there can be a day where it's like, Oh, what do you need to defend yourself for?
1: Yeah, I hear you. And I pray for that utopia, you know, every single day. I do think that regardless of how responsible and accountable and proactive we are as a society, I do want to preempt this by saying this, no matter how hard we try, I do think that bad guys are out there. You know, I do think that I just think the bad guys are going to be there doing what bad guys do, perhaps less, plus less frequently, which is great. But I do think they're going to be out there. But What I found is there's so many taboos about talking about stuff that make people uncomfortable. You know, the people don't talk about mental health as much as they should. They don't talk about addiction as much as they should. They don't talk about sexual assault as much as they should. My daughter is in an aeronautical university that's 80 percent men, and she's writing for the school newspaper. And they wrote an article about sexual assault and the column got banned because nobody wants to talk about it. Being able to talk about uncomfortable things, I think, is a start. Because unless we have a shared reality, like a common reality that we're talking about, there is no solution. The first step to solving a problem is knowing what the problem is. So being able to speak up and speak out about it, I think, is powerful. Being able to ask somebody to say, hey, look, say out loud, I'm a survivor. This is what happened to me. And to be able to start a dialogue around that, I think, would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And once that dialogue starts, and we'll realize how pervasive it is and the Mm -hmm. pervasion and especially in like universities and that kind of thing like it's everywhere it's happening all the time and nobody's talking about it because of litigation because reputation and all of that i think just the first step to that angela would be like let's have a conversation like so
0: statistically like you said like most attackers especially for sexual assault are men uh what do you think we can do to educate men or Young boys, because young boys eventually turn into these men who, you know, amount of them do attack other people. Like, what do you think we can do in addition to like situational awareness, in addition to like trusting your gut, in addition to learning self defense to kind of change the scope of things?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I like, Angela, I like where you're going with this because my involvement in self defense is me and you working on what you're going to do, what you are going to do to avoid and solve these problems. And what you're talking about is what can we do as a whole to solve these? And I see that. And I appreciate where you're going with that. A couple of things. First of all, I think it's important to continue, like, making sure that young men understand that women aren't objects, that, you know, the amount of respect and integrity they need to be afforded. You know, it like, no matter. I also think I keep going back to universities in my head, you know, The scenarios where, you know, people are getting drunk, she's too drunk or he's too drunk and then something bad happens, you know what I mean? Those situations can be addressed, you know, but overall, I hesitate to bring this up, but I mean, rape and sexual assault, people assume that it's just about sex, that it's just about, you know, physical sex, but more often than not, rape is about power. And also it's frequent that is a cycle that had started with them in the family or at home, or something that had happened to them. You understand what I'm saying? I think contributing to, you know, family health, mental health, that kind of thing would be great. I'm kind of at a loss at like where we would start with that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's a big question, Angela.
0: It is a big question. I don't want to. I mean, I'm sure we can talk about this for another hour, but I want to like leave off with just one more question, if that's okay with you. Sure, of course. Um, you know, you spoke about power, which I think is a really, really good point, because unfortunately, it's really true. A lot of people, they do it for whatever reason, but they do make it about power. It is about power. How do you feel like the way that society treats masculinity and how they view what a man should be contributes to this kind of culture?
1: I think it does. I mean, the way, like God, that classic whole you know, guys have to be strong. They have to be in power. They have to you know, take care of their women and women need to be taken care of or whatever. Like that, that whole dynamic is absolutely crazy. And I'm not a fan of it. Anybody that's me and my wife, they know my wife wears the goddamn pants, man. Like at the gym, I'm in charge at home. She is like.
0: And there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Oh God, no, absolutely not. It makes her beautiful. Like to me, that's one of the most attractive things about her is that she takes shit from nobody, not even me. I, I think that's wonderful. You know, like that whole paradigm of guys being tough, guys just being in charge, guys being masculine and virile and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm going to say it. It's toxic. It's toxic. You know, in terms of the solution, man, I will rack my brain how to fix that. But like, it's so endemic. Yeah, again, just starting a conversation about it, being open about it. You know, I am a sensitive man. I know I look butch. I know I look like I'm just, you know, I'm a martial arts instructor that likes to fight and like violence or whatever. But dude, I cry at Kleenex commercials, you know, (laughs) I am just, you know, like I'm this sensitive guy that, you know, most people don't know what to look at me, but I'm a little teddy bear, you know, I really am. And so frequently you get people walking in the gym, chest up, chin up, you know, I got to be the toughest guy in the room. And I always just start by addressing them as soon as I can and say, hey, buddy, first of all this is not about showing the world how powerful and tough you are. This is about setting your ego aside and just being a better man than you were yesterday. It's that simple. And if we can extrapolate that little conversation to, you know, a society conversation, I think that'd be fantastic.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I hope you don't feel like on the spot because I was asking you a bunch of things about it. It's definitely like a multidimensional thing. There's so many ways to approach it from all different angles and directions. And, you know, starting conversations is definitely like a good one changing our perceptions on masculinity and then ergo maybe getting better mental health access or changing the stigma amount around mental health especially for men would be another one among so many other things you know it's like we're just throwing these things out there but there's just so many layers to this it's not just in black and white and we're just throwing out some solutions but it's not definitely not all the solutions
1: yeah i agree with you like The work that I do is I train the people that are in front of me. You know what I mean? Like, so my leverage on the scenario is, you know, limited to the amount of people that show up for my next self-defense course, you know, and the conversation you're like, you're broaching is about like having a systemic solution. And while I've thought about it, I've never really come up with something that I think would be effective. It really is a layered dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's complicated. It's knotted up.
0: It's not easy, that's for sure. Otherwise, we would have figured it out already (laughs) if it was
1: easy. would hope, yeah.
0: Yeah. Ben, thank you so much for sharing so much. I know things got really intense over there. Is there anything you want to plug? Like, how can people follow you, your school, keep up to date with anything that you're about? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So my gym is the Phase 3 Training Center. You can find, if you happen to be in Northern California, uh, north of the Golden Gate Bridge, you can find me at phase3.com, P-H-A-S, and then the number 3.com. Also, on social media, you can find me on Instagram, uh, phase3, phas s three s r for Santa Rosa, phase3SR on Instagram. And that's pretty much it.
0: Okay, uh, short and sweet. And for uh, Mui Ying, you can find us on com. You can find things on your trip to Thailand, fights, historical moments that have happened in this past year. We also have a patreon account if you'd like to support financially so we can keep producing quality content for you and that's patreon.com slash Moying. Moying being one word and you can follow me angela chang via instagram angela sitan that's A N G L A S I T A N. if you can review subscribe and share this episode greatly appreciate it thank you for listening to Moying, the first platform focused on those in the muay thai community that deserve more attention than they get. For more information on training, fighting, living in Thailand, and other episodes, please visit moy yincom This is your host, Angela Chang, signing off. See you in the next episode of Moying.